standing in honor of the word of God. Uh, tradition we received from the priest Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. Verse 19 through verse 32 here in Acts 26, and I'm reading from the New King James Version of God's Word. Paul is speaking as he gives his defense before King Agrippa and Festus and others. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and together, such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And Father, we do pray that you would have your way in our hearts as we look at this passage. As we look at the Apostle Paul giving his defense, we see the response of two men, King Agrippa as well as Governor Festus. God, we pray that you would speak to us in regard to these things, that your spirit would be with us, that he would lead us into your truth, that he would be our teacher today and that Jesus would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 18, of course, we saw Paul begin his defense uh, before King Agrippa and the others. Now, we're reminded that as he gives his defense before King Agrippa, uh, Paul knew that there was no opportunity, even as Agrippa says at the end of the chapter, if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he, he could very well have been a freed man at this point in time. 
but there was no opportunity for either Festus or King Agrippa to free him because he had appealed to Caesar. Once he made that appeal, he had to go to Caesar. He had to appear, appear before him. And so no opportunity for freedom until then. But King Agrippa heard what he had to say. And we, of course, saw the response. But I want to I read just to... Um, just as a reminder, and, and basically as an introduction to today's teaching, verses 13 to 18 in this 26th chapter, uh, as we are reminded of what Paul had to say, and, and he gives his, his conversion experience testimony. You know, and, and we're reminded, too, that Paul, throughout the book of Acts, or this, this latter, latter part of Acts, as he gives his defense against the accusations made against him by the Jews, his defense is comprised basically of his testimony, his encounter with Christ, who Jesus is, and what he's done for him. We pick up in verse 13 again, Acts 26. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me, and we, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they, uh, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Having given this testimony, we pick up here in verse 19. And Paul says here in verse 19 in Acts 26, uh, act, um, yes, um, therefore, he says to King Agrippa, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Obedience is an essential of the Christian life. Obedience does not remove our sins. We can't be made right with God through a life of obedience, but we li live a life of obedience because we have been delivered from our sins. We obey as a response to what Jesus has done for us. One thing that I want to point out here as we have read Paul's testimony and what uh, Jesus spoke to him, there's a difference. In fact, there's a great difference between what we read in verses 15 through 18 in the sense of the words of Jesus to Saul of Tarsus, at that time on the road to Damascus, which took place, of course, in Acts chapter 9, 
A difference between what we see here in chapter 26 and what Luke wrote in chapter 9. Um, but one thing that we see, there's a lot here that wasn't there, but also one thing that was there in chapter 9 is not here. And that is the second question that the, that the Apostle Paul, again, Saul of Tarsus then, uh, what he asked Jesus. You know, of course, he asked him, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, right? But then he asked, What do you want me to do? And we don't see that here. In verse 6 of chapter 9, um, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Here we see Jesus saying to him, Arise, but then gave him some detail about what he's going to do, what he has called him for, the very purpose for which he appeared to him, which we didn't see in chapter 9. We went, we, went, we went over this last week, of course. But I think something that's interesting is that because he only speaks about Jesus' response to the first question, not even giving to Agrippa the second question he asked, it seems that the important thing was the identification of who Jesus was. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. F.F. Bruce wrote this, From the moment when he heard the words, I am Jesus, Paul knew but one master. Henceforth, for him to receive a command from that one master was to set about obeying it. Once a command would be given, the obedience would be set into motion as a response to the command that is given. And in verse 19, notice that the first words that Paul says to King Agrippa uh, is, well, the first word is therefore, connecting the previous with the following. Remember, whenever we see the word therefore, we want to consider what it is there for, to connect what already had been said to what's following. And based on Jesus saying, I am Jesus, then he said, therefore, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That says something to us. The simple reality that God speaks should set obedience into motion. Amen? If he is truly God, which we, of course, believe he is, if that's who he is, then when he speaks, we listen. And we put into practice those things that we hear from him. If he gives a command, we obey him. Why? Not because a command is so great, although they are, but we obey him because of the one who gave the command. That's why. Because it comes from God. Because he is the maker, the creator of all things. Because there is no God beside him. There, there is no other. Jesus Christ, of course, is God as well, the second person of the Godhead. And the Holy Spirit, of course, being the third person, the Trinity, as we know them to be one God in three persons. And yet, the obedience. Paul did not disobey the heavenly command, the heavenly vision as worded here. And some might say, well, if I, have, if I ever had a heavenly vision, I wouldn't disobey it either. Now, 
there are very few people who could say, I've actually seen Jesus. But we do see him through the eyes of our heart. Very few can say, I've actually heard him. But we've heard him speak internally to our heart. That, that's really the work of the Holy Spirit that we're experiencing when that takes place. But it is, of course, Jesus himself as well in the sense of the heart of Jesus is speaking to us. But one thing about obedience, it's something that is very important to us. And, and there's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 5. It speaks about obedience as something that we need to come to. And Jesus himself needed to come to that place. It's interesting. Look at this verse, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he was a son, obviously speaking of Jesus, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Suffering taught him obedience. That's trippy, isn't it? I always trip out at that. But it's like, yeah, I mean, it's as if he didn't have obedience nailed down until he went through this suffering, and then he learned it through the suffering, right? And that's basically what this is saying. And then, verse 9, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obedience is a key. Now, again, through obedience, we don't gain salvation. But obedience is a trait of those who are saved. That's why it's worded this way, to all who obey him. We can't obey him, really, until we're saved and we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. That power to open our eyes to the, to the truths of God and then that power to enable us to actually obey. Romans 1.5 Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So we see Paul writing to the Romans that having received grace and apostleship, in his, in his case, apostleship, but we all have received grace, and we, we, we receive his grace for obedience so that we can obey. We receive his grace. It's a gracious act of God to speak to our hearts. It's gracious of him to give us his, his word. It's gracious of him to speak to us in regard to his will for our lives. It's gracious for him to speak commands to us. And it's gracious of him to give us the obedience to obey. But it is all for the purpose of obeying so that as we live our lives before God, and before the nations, as we see there in Romans 1.5, before all people who don't know him, he can be seen. If we want to be like Jesus, and if we want others to see Jesus in our lives, we cannot do it if we do not obey his commands. We will not be used by him in that way if we don't obey his commands. Ephesians 2.8, we see uh, 8 through 10, we see grace and obedience linked. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see that God makes us the people that he wants us to be, having received his grace, being delivered by his grace through the faith which he gives to us. It's all working together for him. Uh, once we are saved, he's working in our lives. He's, he's making us as, as his workmanship able to perform the good work that he's called us to do. So the reality that obedience accompanies true salvation. We see that also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writing to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. Now this doesn't mean we work for our salvation, but we give attention to being obedient to God so that his salvation in us works through our lives. We work out our salvation in that salvation is seen through the way that we live our lives. It is God, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he causes us to not only desire to do but also gives us the ability to do for his good pleasure. Obedience also acknowledges God's authority in our lives. In Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles answered the Jewish leaders and said these words, they're very familiar to us, we ought to obey God rather than men. God's authority over man's authority. And even if it's an authority that God has placed in our lives, if that authority speaks to us to do something that God says not to do, we need to obey God rather than man. We know that in a marriage, God places a husband uh, as the head of the home, the head of the wife. But if he is making demands on her that are not consistent with Scripture, then a wife needs to obey God rather than her husband. And that, that, that's just the way it is in this world. All authority. God is the ultimate supreme authority. We obey him. And if other authorities want us to do it differently, no, we don't do those things. We obey God instead. We ought, we ought to obey God rather than man. Obedience also is an expression of trust in God. Trusting God through obedience. Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. In the sixth verse of that same chapter, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
So pleasing him through obedience is a sign of faith, is an expression of our faith in God, an expression of trusting him. Obedience also is a um, proof or um, evidence of our love for him. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, that certainly seems to be an indication that we don't actually love him. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, gird up, your, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your hope fully on the grace. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. In other words, stop acting like you don't know. Right? In your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not most of our conduct, not 90% of our conduct, not 99.44% of our conduct. But in all our conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I've noticed in my walk with the Lord, in my 50 years of walking with the Lord, most of those years uh, ministering and teaching God's word, there are some believers who will accuse the brother or sister who has a heart for living a holy life some will call that person a legalist. When all they're wanting to do is just simply please God. Express their love for Him by obeying. That's something that is not an uncommon thing. But let me ask you something. When Jesus said in John 8, 29, for I always do those things that please Him, was He being a legalist? Of course, we wouldn't say that of Jesus. But why would someone say that of us if we want to obey him, if we want to please him, right? Well, that's what happens in this world. And, 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 and bottom line, it's an excuse. It's, it's like a person giving some kind of justification for their own lack of a desire to live a holy life. That does indeed take place. Now, I, I, I have spoken to a number of people into, into regard, in regard to these things. A number of years ago, I, I remember uh, someone asking me, is it a sin to smoke cigarettes? And I said, you're going to hell. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Oh. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13 says, Therefore, Paul writing, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, the context there, he was talking about food, meat, specifically that was sacrificed to idols. And the question you know, that, 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 that comes with that and all. And, 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 and Paul gives us a principle if I am going to do something that I am free to do that is going to cause my brother or 
sister to stumble, then through the higher law of love, not because it's required, not because God says thou shalt not smoke, but because it can be a hindrance to other people. Then, out of that love for them, I refrain. It's that simple. It's that simple. You know, so, in answer to the question, is it a sin? Well, it might be a bit carnal, like a lot of other things that we do are carnal. Put it in the category of sin, or are, are we taking care of of, of our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, not necessarily so, but how many other things do we do that we, I mean, it's like, don't smoke a cigarette, but it's okay if you're a glutton. You know what I mean? Um, because we like to eat. <laughs> everybody likes to eat. Not everybody likes to smoke a cigarette. Any, anyway, but that's the thing. You know, many times Jesus answered a question that was posed to him for the purpose of making him trip up by asking another question, another question. But as Paul answers this, 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 this uh, uh, question here in 1 Corinthians 8, you know, we have to ask the question, was he being a legalist there? Or, or was he simply a man who loved his God and loved people around him? Right? Um, the person, and, and unfortunately this is the case, even within the church, the person who really desires to glorify God in everything is going to be set apart, actually sets himself or herself apart, consecrates himself or herself apart from others within the church. Of course, we always have different stages of development, a new Christian, a baby Christian, as opposed to a mature Christian, one who's been... been a believer, I've been a believer for over 50 years now. You know, so there are differences from that, obviously, but also from desire. Obedience was expressed by Paul through the declaration of the message, even as uh, the Lord Jesus gave him that call. Now, the message that he gave, we see here in verse 20. He declared, Paul declared, first of those, let's take a look at those to whom he made this declaration. Those in Damascus and in Jerusalem. So Jews and Gentiles alike. Throughout all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So we see those to whom he made the declaration, and then the declaration stated... At the end of this verse, repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. These uh, various locations and the people to whom he made, he made the declaration remind us of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in which Jesus is speaking, and he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Right? That's what we need to do. Be a witness for Christ, basically wherever we are, in our own backyard, 
going out further out in, uh, away from our, our own home, you know, our own workplace. You know, it, it's like um, the, the city of Jerusalem, the uh, province of Judea, like maybe the state that we live in, uh, and Samaria, maybe our country, the, U- the United States of America, and to the end of the earth, uh, foreign missions. You know, that's what we do. Wherever we go, really. And that, that's the thing that, that the Lord is saying. Wherever you are, be a witness. Wherever you are, be a witness. The declaration being that they ought to repent. They should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Repentance involves a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Repentance is a spiritual about-face. You're headed in one direction, and you do about an about-face and head the other. You're, you're, you're uh, headed away from God, you do an about-face, and now you're walking toward Him. Turning to God from the devil himself. And we see that as well, turning to God there. That, that, is, that is just like an, an expl- a little bit of an exclamation, or explanation, I should say, of what repentance actually is. You know, this change of behavior comes through actually treating God like he really is God. Just acknowledging him to be God. And because he's God, you listen and obey. You trust and obey. That, that, that old gospel song, you know, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's the essence of it, you know. Repentance also being an essential for us as Christians as we submit our hearts to God, honoring his person as God. It's interesting, in the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, after he had been in the wilderness, you know, tested, tempted by, uh, by, by Satan himself, uh, once, a whole, once the, the, the angels come and minister to him, then he begins his ministry. In Acts chap, excuse me, in Matthew chapter four, verse seventeen, it says this: From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Sounds like John the Baptist, huh? But it always has interested me that the very first word that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first word that Jesus speaks once he begins his ministry. After being baptized with the Spirit, tempted by Satan, is repent. The very first word. And yet there are some who would say, well, repentance isn't necessary for salvation. But again, repentance does not save us, but it it is an essential part of being saved. What we do because we are saved. We, we change. We can't remain the same. If we do remain the same, that is an indication that we truly are not saved. 
We're not really recognizing God for who he is. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul writing to them says, For they themselves declare concerning us, um, writing about other areas of Macedonia, uh, what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so this idea of repentance and turning to God from idols, that's that about face that we talked about. At one time serving idols, now serving God. And, and uh, again, very similar to what we see here in, in Acts verse uh, 18 of chapter 26. Jesus speaking to Saul of Tarsus back in uh, at when he was converted, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, excuse me, just before that, um, turn, turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. From darkness to light, and again, we talked about these things last, night, or last, last time together, but you know, it's it just a, a, a key to what we're looking at here. And to do works befitting of repentance. Obedience, repentance, turning to God from, from idols, and doing those works that show that we have actually repented. A message of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. And we don't have to talk about why the Sadducees were called that, right? You guys know, right? Okay, okay. Just checking. In those verses, 8 to 12 in chapter 3 of Matthew, John the Baptist says to them, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff and unquenchable fire. John the Baptist basically refers to a person who is living in disobedience, who does not repent, as the chaff which is going to be burned in the fire. Obedience is important. Again, it doesn't save us, but it is a sure evidence of our salvation. Now we have to be careful though. Because somebody who's sitting in a church and hears that message about the importance of obedience, who's not yet given his or her heart to Christ, can begin to really try really hard to obey and think that they're okay with God when it's just an outward obedience without a change of heart, without being born again, without receiving the life of God. So we have to remember how this all works together. In Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is speaking these letters to the seven churches of Asia, in Revelation 2, uh, we, we see the first letter to the Ephesian church. And in verses 4 and 5, we see these words. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's pretty heavy. Walking with the Lord for a while, we can forget. Our, our Christian experience can be doing stuff that Christians do. Leaving our first love and, re, and continuing to do those things that Christians do. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, remember from where you've fallen. What that speaks about is the idea that when they first came to Jesus, they were excited, they were, they were on fire, they wanted to serve him, they wanted to please him, they were thankful. But after a period of time, those things can leave. They've left their first love. So remember from what, where you've fallen. Repent and we could say redo do those first works again. Remember, repent, redo, if you will. That's what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. It could very well apply to our church as well. It could apply to many hearts within this church. And I think we need to take this personally and examine our own hearts appropriately. We see in verse 21... Paul beginning to speak about his own persecution. I promise you the rest of the chapter is going to go much more quickly than those few verses we just went through. Um, notice that even as Paul had said, I was, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, gives the dec the, the, these things that he uh, uh, was given to do and said, I declared to these people, this was the declaration. Then he says in verse 21, for these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Remember what, what the Jews had said? They, they said that he had uh, uh, basically um, brought dishonor to the temple. He had defiled the temple by bringing a, 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 a Gentile into it. And Paul is saying here, no, the, the reason is because I was obedient to the heavenly vision. This is what I was doing. This is what I was declaring to Jew and Gentile alike. That's why they seized me. That's why they tried to kill me. But in verse 22, he speaks about the help that he had received. You remember that earlier in Acts chapter 15, this is actually Peter speaking, uh, speaking of the Gentiles, in that 15th chapter of Acts is that, uh, that, that, that council of Jerusalem when the, the, Christian or the church leaders were determining what, we, what are we going to do about the, the uh, Gentiles, what kind of commands are we going to give to them, you know, all these things. Peter said this in verses 8 and 9 of Acts 15. So God who knows the heart acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. That's what the Jews did not like. He placed the Gentiles 
on an equal footing spiritually with the Jews. And the same requirement is made of each in terms of salvation, faith in Christ, the work of Christ on the cross. So this is what the Jews did not like. But again, he'd received help from God. He's, he's able to stand before uh, Agrippa now, having received that help, that deliverance. On this occasion, the help was deliverance from the hand of these Jews who, who were persecuting him. We talked about deliverance last week uh, to, to a deeper depth, to, to a greater depth. And then he speaks about in verse 22 and 23, uh, these words, therefore having ob uh, obtained help, uh, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. I, I'm just simply following the scriptures. I, I'm, I'm, I'm repeating what the prophets had spoken, repeating what Moses had spoken. And that is this, that the, the Messiah would come, the Christ would suffer. That he would be the first to rise from the dead. So now he's speaking about resurrection. And proclaim to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So that the Messiah would come, that he would die, that he would be buried, he would rise from the dead. And he would declare light to both Jews and Gentiles alike. So this is the end of his defense, we might call it. Let's understand that Jesus, as Paul speaks of him here in verse 22 and 23, 23 in particular, that Jesus fulfilled 300 messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. 300 of them. Paul understood that Agrippa was aware. Maybe he wasn't aware of 300, but he was aware of the scriptures. He believed the prophets, even as we see Paul declaring to him a little bit later. Paul understood that he did. That's one of the reasons why he was so excited about being able to speak to Agrippa. Perhaps he would turn to Christ. But we see the response of, the, of, of these two men in particular, Festus and then Agrippa. Festus in verse 24, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul, you are crazy. What's wrong with you? Are you saying that a dead man now is alive? What's wrong with you? You're crazy. You're not in the real world, Paul. You're just reading too many books. And I think it's very true that there are people who can do so much reading that, th that they lose sight of practical living and what life really is like people who just spend their time as, quote-unquote, elitists, perhaps intellectual elitists who are in their ivory towers, they're reading one another's works and writing works that they'll read uh, uh, for one another and have no idea what it's like living in this world, really, what the common person goes through. I think that, that can be a very real thing, but... Fest is just, is just simply declaring, Paul, this can't happen. A person can't die and then be raised to life. He had experienced death around him. 
He understood. Paul, in giving his defense, was doing what Peter had said. Peter had written in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Paul's hope was based on the, on the life, death, burial, and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's what he had done. That's what we ought to do as well. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, a church which was um, very much uh, uh, wrapped up as they were trying to come out of the, the paganism there in, in Greece, in, in, in Corinth, uh, trying to come out of that. Paul writes to them in verse 18 of chapter 1, uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and Festus is one of those that regarded what he had heard as just simple foolishness. In fact, he said, Paul, you're crazy. It's driving you mad. You're, you're crazy. But it's not surprising that Paul would be accused of being crazy. Happened to Jesus too. In Mark chapter 3, in fact, we see his own people, which basically means his own family. Mark 3.21, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he's out of his mind. His brothers. His half-brothers. They thought he was out of his mind for doing what he was doing during his ministry. John 10, 20. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Let me ask you a question. Have people around you ever said those kind of things about you? As you're living your faith and sharing your faith with others? Oh, that's ridiculous. That, that, that Bible, that's an ancient book. You shouldn't pay any attention to that. What's wrong with you? Perhaps that's how it came. The message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are not saved. Let's not forget that. And as such, don't, don't also forget that you cannot convince them. Agrippa's going to say, you almost convinced me. Paul wasn't trying to convince him. He was preaching the gospel, praying that the Holy Spirit would grant his heart. Being intellectually convinced is something that I suppose can happen, uh, an intellectual, uh, um, being convinced intellectually, but if you can be convinced intellectually to receive Christ, you can also be convinced intellectually to just walk away from him. I've read that, the, that in essence, that's what happened with uh, John Lennon. I'd heard a report that, that it was declared that he got saved, that he was, and he, and he was, he was talking to others about Jesus. There was a time when he was doing that, but his wife, Yoko Ono, basically 
turned him away. He was almost convinced. We see those kinds of things taking place in our lives, even within our own family, among our friends. Let's remember it's only the work of the Holy Spirit. Be praying, Jesus, open their eyes to see. Open the eyes of their hearts to see you for who you truly are. That's the prayer we need to pray. Paul responded to Agrippa. We see after Agrippa's speech in verse 27, um, Paul said to Agrippa in verse 27, I know that you believe. Agrippa says in verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And then Paul says in verse 29, I, 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 I would to God, Agrippa, that not only you, but everyone here might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. That's an expression of his heart for the lost. He desired all of them, that all of them would come to Christ, that all of them would believe, that all of them would be a Christian. Now, let's, let's just remember, Christianity, the faith, the church, it's not an organization that we can just join up with. God adopts us into his family through spiritual rebirth and we, and we become a part of the church. I think that can be a danger in, in, in having membership roles. Well, good, I'm a part of the church. I'm right with God. Without ever having any real born-again experience with Jesus. But this is Paul's heart. He's praying that God would do that work. Romans 9, 3. We see these words written by Paul to the Romans. For I could wish that I myself, we've shared this recently, uh, uh, that, that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. For my brethren, my countrymen. Paul wrote to the Roman church that he wished that, he, that others could take his salvation. I've got this salvation. I've got this life. I'll give it to them. Wow. That's a heavy thing. But in it all, we see that as both Festus and Agrippa had responded, we see different responses to the gospel as it comes to to people in the way that we will share with our friends and our family. Um, you know, it's uh, we can't we can't respond. We we can't control. We can't control the response. All we can do is, in obedience, give a defense. To give a defense for the hope that lies within us, even as Paul, the apostle had done. You know, when Agrippa says to Festus, boy, this guy could have been freed if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, makes us wonder, well, did Paul make a mistake by doing that? I don't think so. I mean, he was headed to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome to give the gospel. 
And we will see that he spends several years in Rome under house arrest, but with freedom he would receive guests. People were coming in and out. He, he wrote the, the prison epistles while he was there in prison in Rome. You know, and so a lot of work was done there. He just couldn't travel. But people came to him, and he ministered. And he was able to go before Caesar Nero. We don't see that in the book of Acts. But undoubtedly, that did take place at some point in time. After the book of Acts was written, most likely. But all his persecution, all his suffering, all that he went through comes from that one commitment that he stated, that he made. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Because of his obedience, he suffered. Because he shared the gospel, because he preached the gospel, because he gave God's word, because he equated all mankind together, as sinners needing to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, he suffered. Mostly at the hands of the Jews, we know. But he went to Rome. In fact, the state of Rome paid for his trip. That's kind of cool. Oswald Chambers, in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, wrote this, the only way to be obedient to the heavenly vision is to give our utmost for his highest, our best for his glory. This can be accomplished only when we make a determination to continually remember God's vision. But the acid test is obedience to the vision and the details of our everyday life. 60 seconds out of every minute, 60 minutes out of every hour, not just during times of personal prayer or public meetings. Our utmost for his highest. Our very best for his glory. Might that be the determination of our hearts? Father, I pray that you would do your work in us. And Lord, even if, as now as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, partaking and remembering what you have, partaking of these emblems and, and remembering what you have done for us. Lord, might we not forget your vision, what you have shown us in terms of your love for us and your desire for us. To be made right with you. And all that you did for us to make that happen. And so God be with us now. Pour your spirit upon us. Even now Lord. Might we see you Lord Jesus. Through the eyes of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. We are going to partake of communion now. Um,